Hello and welcome to Women Who Protect, a monthly series as part of the Ontic Protective Intelligence podcast. In a profession largely dominated by men, we spotlight women working in a wide range of positions within security, protection, and law enforcement. We will hear their stories, discuss their accomplishments, and also seek their advice for women and girls who might be interested in a career in protection or security. I'm Dr. Marisa Randazzo with Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. After nearly three decades of experience working in security and protection, as the chief research psychologist at the U.S. Secret Service, and then in the private sector, providing security guidance to corporations, educational institutions, and high-profile individuals, I know firsthand the immense value that women bring to this field. And I know the challenges that we face. I look forward to sharing with you the stories of women who protect and hope they inspire other women and girls to consider joining our ranks. Now, on to the podcast. Karen Ortman is an Associate Vice President of Campus Safety Operations at New York University. Within the Department of Campus Safety at NYU, she supervises over 300 personnel in security services, support services, incident review and victim services, external affairs, events, and lost and found. She's also the chair of NYU's behavioral intervention team. Prior to NYU, Karen served for over 25 years in law enforcement with the Mercer County Prosecutor's Office located in Trenton, New Jersey. She's also the creator and host of the NYU podcast, You Matter a podcast created to provide resources to listeners and to remove the stigma from conversations related to mental health, addiction, and victimization. Karen, welcome to Women Who Protect. It's great to have you with us, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. I also want to say, in addition to the uh, the bio that I just went through, it's wonderful to have you here because you are a personal colleague and friend of mine, and, and I've had a chance to work with you over uh, the course of several years. So it's uh, particularly a, a personal pleasure for me to have you join us today. Marisa, mine as well. Thank you so much. Sure. I, I want to start out just with a, a quick overview. You are our very first guest on Women Who Protect, who has a role in protection and safety for colleges and universities. I'd love to hear, what are your roles and responsibilities in your position at NYU right now? Sure. My, my role is Associate Vice President of Campus Safety Operations here at NYU in New York City. My areas of responsibility are uh, special events, protective services, lost and found, uh, incident review team, victim services, and then, of course, I oversee over 300 uniformed campus safety officers and their chain of command in campus safety operations. And I report directly to uh, the vice president of global campus safety, and that is Fountain Walker. I mentioned just a moment ago um, that you are currently associate vice president of campus safety operations for NYU. Let me start first with how did you get into the field of security in the first place? Great question. Um, I'm actually a retired detective lieutenant from 
the Mercer County Prosecutor's Office in Trenton, New Jersey. I was in law enforcement for 25 years and primarily either investigated or supervised violent crimes, um, child abuse, sex assault, um, homicide for a brief period. And, you know, in, in New Jersey law enforcement, typically when you reach your 25, it's not uncommon to move on to a second career because of um, the fact that when you do 25 years, you're, you're oftentimes still very young if you start, you know, 21, 22 years of age. So I honestly fell into this opportunity at NYU. They had several positions posted. I think there was a, a pretty big reorganization happening at the time, just prior to my arrival. And I applied for a position in investigations and was offered a position not in investigations, <laughs> but in uh, compliance, essentially, which I, I knew very little about, but I also knew I could learn. I wasn't terribly interested in, in the compliance position, mm -hmm. but I had had conversations with the, I believe she was a executive vice president at the time, who was very persuasive in suggesting that I take the compliance position and then should something open up in investigations, then that would be my opportunity. And, and I decided to go for it. So I started at NYU in, uh, let's see, I retired in December of 2013 and I started at NYU January 13th, 2014. You're telling me you had not quite two weeks off. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I jumped right into it and, you know, initially really questioned my decision because, you know, there's a commute involved and I, you know, still had children who were in, in school. But then, you know, over time, like I said, there was a reorg and, and there were, you know, different um, people that came in in higher ed throughout the country, actually, to NYU that really changed everything for me and and my love of this career, you know, that I, I very much apprehensively uh, uh, chose and decided to pursue. Um, so then, you know, and now I, you know, nine years later, I know that I am exactly where I'm supposed to be. So that is how I ended up in security. Oh, I love it. It followed my law enforcement career. Well, how did you first get into law enforcement? I kind of fell into that as well. I was finishing up my degree in political science and public administration. I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. At the time, there was um, an opening in the Mercer County Prosecutor's Office. And of course, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't, I didn't have an understanding of what county law enforcement was until I started looking into uh, the fact that they were looking for detectives at the time. And the, the county prosecutor's office really is like a county police department. The difference is at the county prosecutor's office, I learned that, that the office was broken up into investigative units. So depending upon what unit you are assigned, that's what you would 
handle, that your day would be filled with either getting cases prepared for grand jury presentation, for trial, or you'd be in a more uh, specific unit, such as back then it was called the rape unit, um, homicide, special investigations, and, and so forth. But at the time I fell into this position as a detective in the prosecutor's office, it was because they were looking for women and they were looking for women who would be willing to go to the rape unit um, because the rape unit is, you know, it's a 24-7 on-call uh, position. You know, you'd get week, like an entire week on call and it's very taxing and you would have to want to, to do this work. Um, so I pursued that position, that opening in the rape unit, and I, you know, was assigned to the rape unit. Um, shortly after being hired, I was, um, sent to the police academy through the division of criminal justice and became a, you know, certified police officer in the state of New Jersey. And, and I was assigned to, to the rape unit. Wow. So I think that's, I love that you explained how the prosecutor's office has law enforcement, that, that, that they have investigative units. I think so many people don't know that. They think investigations are just done by police departments or sheriff's offices. And then um, prosecution, the criminal justice is, is handled by a prosecutor's office. I, I, I could imagine, as, as, I, as I had read through your bio and looked at the types of cases that you handled within the Mercer County Prosecutor's Office. These are these are heavy-duty cases. I mean, the rape unit you just talked about, looks like you also were working on child abduction and child fatality. Um, that's, I can't even imagine what that's like to have that as your your day-to-day caseload. Tell me a bit about what that was like, uh, just as an investigator, and, and um, particularly since they were looking for women, it, it, if there's anything specific that, that you experienced as a woman in, in those roles. You know, it's, it was an interesting career for sure. You know, as I said, when I first started, they were looking for women only to go to that union, which is, is sexist, right? <laughs> um, sure. a discriminatory, um, because over time that changed, of course, and men were brought into that unit. Um, and you know, we were all trained in the same fashion. And, you know, I was a detective there. And then of course I was a supervisor there over the course of years. But what I learned is that that's not a gender specific type of investigation because I've seen men who were assigned to that unit who were just as empathetic and compassionate and capable as many women were. And there were some women that weren't, you know? And so, uh, so the whole gender uh, thing was, was really meaningless, but the cases themselves were very traumatic. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, PTSD associated with being assigned to a homicide unit, but in my estimation and based on my experience the the most traumatic times in my career were when i was handling child abuse oh gosh and you know it's something that you you know you're doing god's work you are 
available 24 seven, you will leave your child's birthday party because another child needs you. You will do what you have to do to investigate these cases successfully. But nobody recognizes the toll that it takes on the law enforcement individual. I don't think it, it didn't happen when I was in it. And I am still very much connected to those who continue that work today. And it's still not something that is recognized. It's you live it, you know, you, you live it, you, you can't stop thinking about it. You can never sit with a child and tell them that you'll make it better because there is no way if a child has been, you know, brutally beaten or sexually abused by a parent, by a loved one, a family friend, you will never be able to make it better for them. And me, I'm a fixer. I want to be able to say, I can do this for you. Yeah. You know, and the most that I can do is put the pieces of the puzzle to that investigation together and, and, you know, working with a, an assistant prosecutor and successfully prosecute that case. That's, that's the most that I can do and ensure that they have resources available to them and, you know, give them what is within my, you know, realm in law enforcement to, to give them, but that's it. You know, I, I can't fix it and I can't make it better. And the, the case volume was so great that there were times that I would say to my husband who fortunately understood because he's also in law enforcement or it currently is and was at the time when I was there, I, I just wanted to throw my phone into my pond and, and not answer another call and just kind of go to sleep. Yeah. You know, it, it, it was very, very stressful. And I wish now looking back that I talked about that more, you know, but there, there is that stigma and I'm sure we'll get to that when we talk about the podcast I have, there is a stigma when you are in law enforcement to to admit that you are struggling and I didn't admit it. And, and it is completely, it is beyond understandable for anyone in law enforcement to, to experience trauma based on the cases that they face, but especially the caseload that, that you had in, in a rape unit, in a child abuse unit, uh, those, those cases stay with you. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I had a number of colleagues in my secret service days, um, who would, the Secret Service would lend investigative assistance over to the Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Um, yeah. And so you do rotations over there. And, and my colleagues who did, I, I, I had colleagues who worked there full time and I couldn't imagine the toll on them of just that, that subject matter, that those cases, each child is just a, a heartbreaking story. And, and for those of us who are fixers, so many of us in security and law enforcement are fixers. It's a, it's a great term that you want to get in there and do what you can to help. And, and the, the level of, of rage that, that you can experience in seeing those cases, sadness that, that you can experience in, in knowing those things are going on. And at the same time, knowing there is only so much you can do in your right. position as an investigator, as a prosecutor, as a, as a, as mental health support to, to help change that trajectory for that child. You know, people used to ask me, you know, how do you deal with, 
you know, when I was in the homicide unit, how do you deal with a deceased child? Mm -hmm. And as painful as that was and difficult, because I don't think anyone will ever tell you that those cases are easy. The difference is they're not suffering. They're not suffering anymore. Right. So you can focus on just the puzzle, putting the pieces of the puzzle together to identify who did this to this child and get justice that way. When it's the child abuse victim, you still need to put the pieces of the puzzle together to get justice. But this is something, an experience that they will live with for the rest of their life. And there's nothing you can do about it. And I can imagine, too, I don't know the New Jersey laws on this specifically, but but when you are dealing with a child's death, you have greater prosecutorial support and interest and compulsion yeah. to see a case through, I think, than you, than you do oftentimes with ongoing abuse cases where it may be harder to prove. I, well, exactly. That's the other thing. You know, that's the other challenge associated with child abuse and sexual assault cases. And, and you know, adult sexual assault cases too, because, you know, every jury is looking for DNA evidence, you know, and, and TV contributes to that. Yep. They're looking for the case that they can, you know, where they can get a conviction in a very brief period of time because they have all of the evidence right in front of them. That that rarely happens, you know, and then imagine a child who's three years old and, you know, let's say it was digital penetration. Right. And let's say not significant enough to cause injury. But yet a child is disclosing that, you know, family, friend, uncle, father, mother, whomever uh, put their finger there. Right. That's all you have. You know, and depending upon the quality of that disclosure, you know, is dependent on whether or not the person who did this is going to pay the consequences. And it's really tough because. You know, juries don't want to convict parents, loved ones, grown people who are very composed and professional looking when they're in a courtroom being accused of this behavior at the word of a three-year-old. Right, exactly. And it ends up being a, a, an adult's word versus a, a, a child's word. Yeah. And um, that- You don't have the DNA, you know, you don't have the eyewitness, you don't have a lot of the information that juries want to- to see, hear, feel, touch, you know, they, you don't have it. And we'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you a little about Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. In a world of safety, security, and protection, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That's why we created the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. The center is a trusted resource for those in the security, safety, and protection communities. We share strategies and best practices, insights on current and historical trends, and lessons learned through dialogue, discourse, and alternative analysis for some of the industry's top practitioners. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. 
I want to ask one more question about this and then, and I do want to get to your podcast because I really want to give us some time to talk about stigma and, and reducing stigma around mental health and, and support. It's so important. Um, it, one question, it, it, were you, did you yourself have children at the time that you were handling these cases? Oh my gosh. Yes. And what was that like? It was, I have three children. It was very challenging. It was an environment where my kids heard more than probably most kids because, you know, when I'm the sergeant or lieutenant in charge of a a unit and I'm getting phone calls, you know, and fact patterns are getting explained to me and I'm asking, well, was it digital penetration or was it this? And then, you know, my kids are in the, in the car or we're out to dinner or whatever. Um, that's their memory. And it's not a, it's not a bad one. They, um, according to them, of course, my older one is in law enforcement now. So he laughs about the sort of information he used to hear me talk about when I would get phone calls, but it caused me a lot of worry because I, I knew what was happening to other children out in the world or particularly in, in my county, but out in the world when I would go to trainings and, you know, these experts would come in and you'd hear facts about things that were going on in other parts of the country. Um, and it opened a lot of dialogue for my kids because I, you know, went to a lot of training with respect to how to interview children. And I knew that if they asked the question that I should respond in a way that they would understand. So there was an open dialogue about safety and security and, you know, body parts and names and what do we call body parts? And we always used the, the, the correct anatomical name so that there was never any confusion, much like the confusion I may have had when I was interviewing a child. And they said that uh, somebody touched their pocketbook. Well, what is your pocketbook? Uh, you know, and that was a yep. term that little girls in particular would use for their vaginal area. So I was very open in terms of how I communicated with my my children, and they knew probably more than others did. So it was difficult, but I also thought it was it provi- it provided me an opportunity to be educational in a way that they didn't even realize was educational. You know, it's interesting as you're talking about what your kids remember growing up. Um, it, in my line of work, Secret Service. And, and afterward, I have spent a good portion of my career doing training on preventing school shootings and, and what we know about school shooters. And, and my daughter has absorbed that information just in hearing snippets of phone calls and, and some of the discussions I've had. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in, as she got old enough, Googling what I did and, and learning about it. And I think yeah. she may have been nine or 10 and her, her uh, at the time where she sort of knew what I did and knew some of the specifics about the the work I did. She went. It, she was in uh, an active shooter drill in her elementary school, and, and she actually corrected the instructors with some information they had given <laughs> about school shooters. And and she was like, "No, it's a, that's actually not the case. They're usually suicidal, and there are things we can do to prevent." And I was like, "Oh my gosh, I love that you stood up to the instructor, but I'm so sorry that at age ten you had to have this knowledge and content." So, um, it, so you understand, right? Exactly. Ex- exactly. Let's let's move on because I really do want to hear. I, you are um, in addition to that your role in, in um, within the Department of Campus Safety for NYU. You are also the creator and host of the NYU podcast. You matter. 
Yes. I really want to focus on that. This it's, it sounds like this is a podcast where you are are really trying to reduce and even remove the stigma of, uh, about talking about mental health, addiction, victimization. Please share more because I would I'd love to hear about what you cover and 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 why that's important. Well, here at at NYU, when I first started here, um, even in that the position, the the compliance position. I noticed that there were, because of this reorg that I spoke of, there were some positions that were being cut. And one of the positions was, I think it was called like a victim liaison position. And I instantly became concerned when I saw that because knowing what I knew from law enforcement and having several colleges and universities within the jurisdiction of Mercer County, I knew that there were crimes that happened at those locations. And I'm thinking, here's NYU, this very large school. How is it that there's not going to be somebody here to assist victims with reporting to law enforcement or navigating the criminal justice system? Like, how can they cut this position? So I went to the vice president at the time and I said, I would like to take on this role. I, I, I'm not asking for money. I'm not asking for anything. I would just like to take on this role because there's, and I explained why, you know, that there will, there will be people who will need somebody to, to navigate this whole process with them should they want that sort of help. And, and he was fine with it. And he said, you know, just don't let it interfere with your day job. So. Um, that was really the beginning that will lead me to the podcast several years later, but I started working with victims who reported to NYU that they were victims of a crime. And, you know, of course we have a tremendous amount of resources already on campus. We have title nine, we have our student health center, student wellness, the wellness exchange, so they would be referred, obviously, mandated reporters, you know, anytime it's a sex crime or anything that falls under Title IX would go to Title IX. But there's also the piece that reports to law enforcement. So word of mouth started happening. We started getting more and more people coming to us for guidance and help. The, the staffing grew a little bit. And then we got another vice president in campus safety, and that was Marlon Lynch, who has since left us, and he's now at Michigan State, but Marlon came on board. And, you know, I spoke earlier about how when I started here, I really questioned my decision. And that all changed when Marlon came. And then shortly after, Fountain Walker came as his associate vice president because the the two of them together not only are they excellent leaders but the importance that they put on victims victimization survivors who are part of this university really allowed me to do what it is I'm doing with the podcast. So Marlon 
you know, provided extra staffing. Um, I, I actually got promoted several different times under Marlin's leadership. And this, you know, victim services unit that we now have, you know, has grown exponentially. I'm, I'm needless to say, very proud of, of the service that we provide through our victim services unit. In March of 2019, I was working with a student who came to me, and she won't mind me sharing her name because she was my actual co-host when we first started the podcast. Her name was Saba. Saba came to me, and she was having an issue with uh, private housing, and her roommate at the time was um, involved in a, a domestic violence relationship and had a order of protection against her partner. And Saba was concerned for her safety and really wanted to get out of the lease, but didn't know legally what her obligations were to remain there or if she would be able to get out. So I said, I don't know the answer to that, but let's go to, to a housing court here in New York and we'll sit there all day and we'll wait until we can meet with an attorney and see what they have to say. While we were sitting there, she said, how come the whole university doesn't know that you're here and that you exist? Because you're sitting here with me. And at that point, it had been like six hours already. <sighs> and I laughed and I said, you know what? I appreciate your vote of confidence, but I'm one person. We, you know, I have, you know, maybe a few other people that I can, you know, elicit help with or, or from, um, but it would be very difficult if the entire university knew about me, I'm doing the best that I can do. And then I don't know how we started talking about podcasts we like. And I said, do you think that people would listen to a podcast? Because people don't have to come to me to get resources. We just have to make those resources known to our community and to colleges and universities throughout the country. They can get help on their own if they just are aware of where to go. And then that's really what the, that the idea was born in March of 2019. We launched our first episode in August of 2019. And I'm 125 episodes in. Oh, how fantastic. It's been great. Yeah. And then COVID hit. I tried to have graduate student co-hosts with me doing the podcast. COVID hit. Everybody was home. I didn't want to stop doing the podcast right? because I didn't want to adversely affect its impact already because, you know, they say once you stop doing it, then, you know, your listeners go away. I didn't want that to happen. So I continued because I was here even during uh, the pandemic and I continued recording, but I just did it by myself and, and I kept it going and here we are. Oh, that's great. It, throughout the course of your career it, within law enforcement and then uh, campus safety and the incredible podcast that you're hosting, any advice that you have for women and girls who might be interested in a career, whether it's in law enforcement or in um, campus public safety or, or in security generally? My advice would be to pursue this career if you so desire. It is a worthy profession. If you are someone who 
wants to make a difference. And that can sound very cliche, but you, you truly do make a difference, whether you are in law enforcement or you are in a campus safety environment. In law enforcement, you have the authority to conduct an investigation and to pursue justice. In campus safety, you are the face of safety. You will deal with the community at your college or university. You will be the front-facing person. You will be the one who could make someone's day or break their day based upon your response to them. And if someone is hurt or someone is suffering in campus safety, that's that's where someone is going to go to get help. You know, in law enforcement, if it doesn't fit the parameters of the crime, you can provide resources, but it's very difficult to do anything. In campus safety, you can help anybody. You can help somebody who has been the victim of a crime by facilitating reporting, by being present, by being empathetic and compassionate. You can help somebody in campus safety who is coming to you for help because they don't know where else to go and you can guide them. It is such a worthwhile profession and it, depending on your intention and your why for doing it in the first place um, equals the degree to which you will be successful, um, in my opinion. That's great. Thank you for that. A- anything else that you want to share with us we have no chance to cover? I would ask that your listeners check out our podcast here at NYU, You Matter. Just Google You Matter NYU and take from it what you will. There are, you know, like I said, 125 episodes, all intended to be helpful and resourceful, whether you are seeking education about a certain topic uh, whether there is an addicted person in your life, whether somebody is has a mental health issue, whether you have children and you want to know about internet crimes against children, there's a plethora of subjects that I think you could find interesting regardless of your your situation. So I just ask that people check it out. And I will absolutely endorse that. Please check out Karen's podcast, You Matter, from NYU. Thanks, Karen. It's such a pleasure to talk with you. I, 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 in in all the years we have known each other, I have never known about the, all these aspects of your background that you shared today. It's been an, an incredible experience for me to hear all of this, um, and I'm just so inspired by all the work you've done throughout your career. Thank you for joining oh, us. Thank you so much, and you inspire me as well, my friend. So, thank you. Thank you. Yay, yay. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Roll the Dice and was written by Mark Wallach. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcasts at ontic.co or visit ontic.co slash center for more information.
Thanks for listening.